Welcome back to the Tinderbox Podcast. You just heard the meditation bell of a Zen temple in Japan, traditionally rung three times to begin the session. I'll actually put a link in the show notes to the temple itself. Our guest in this podcast is, among other things, an ordained Zen priest, so this felt like a great way to get us started today. That guest is Angela E. O., and today's podcast is a frank conversation with her on a variety of topics. You can consider this episode a sneak peek at the podcast series I'm doing on the Korean-American experience of the 92 L.A. riots. I'm codenaming that project Angel Fire. I haven't settled on a name yet, but that one sounds pretty cool. As a Korean-American on the ground in late April of 1992, Angela, in a short time, went from being a 36-year-old attorney operating in Los Angeles to being the sudden spokeswoman for Korean-America. How does one go from being a community organizer and lawyer to being the center of national attention? Stay tuned. You'll hear all about it. But the short of it is that the spotlight centered on her when Angela appeared on Nightline in 1992. Now, if you're a youngster, Nightline might not mean much to you. But at the time, Ted Koppel was the man with a capital M, and appearing on Nightline was like being on the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. It turned her into a national figure in a flash. Angela went on to serve in the Clinton administration on the advisory board to the president's initiative on race. The administration's advisory board brought her into conversation with community leaders who had been doing the kind of work she'd been doing, specifically on race relations. She spent a lot of time listening and contributed to the final report released in 1998, which you'll find online. I'm going to read one of the recommendations in this report specifically about the justice system. The reason I'm reading this is that, well, it sounds familiar because here we are in 2020 having these same conversations again. So anyway, quote, Racial disparities exist in both the realities and perceptions of crime and the administration of justice. Minorities and people of color often absorb a disproportionate amount of the social, economic, and personal costs of crime. These groups want and need strong law enforcement. Building One America, which I should note is a kind of a, a catchphrase in here, anyway, quote, requires building a criminal justice system that serves and treats Americans of all races fully and fairly. To do so, we must build trust in our criminal justice system and reduce crime by and against minorities and people of color. Substantial challenges remain to achieving these criminal justice goals. First, criminal victimization rates are significantly greater for minorities and people of color than for whites, especially with regard to violent crime. Second, studies indicate that minorities and people of color have less confidence and trust in law enforcement than whites. Several factors probably contribute to this mistrust. According to participants in our May meeting, these factors include negative interactions between minorities and people of color and law enforcement personnel, uh, parentheses, which may range from unjustified police stops to improper use of force, and parentheses, racial disparities in the administration of justice, including disparities in incarceration rates, sentencing and imposition of the death penalty, and the lack of diversity among law enforcement personnel, e.g. police, prosecutors, and judges. If this sounds familiar, well, this came from 1998. And what's really troubling is that it could take hundreds of years to find the kind of one America unity that I guess we're all looking for. Angela O's vocation is as an attorney. I might characterize Angela's legal work as that of a peacemaker, especially in the latter part of her career. That's when Angela got out of the trial lawyer side of the house and focused on mediation, that is, structured, party-engaged approaches to resolution. 
You bring in a mediator when you have two groups at odds with each other, hoping to find a solution that will please or more accurately displease both. It really goes to the heart of Angela's character, I think, that she chose that path in the law. She has a great way to getting to the heart of things. You'll hear that. But a person's vocation only gets you part of the way to understanding them. Later in her life, Angela became an ordained priest of the Rinzai Zen Buddhist sect. Rinzai is usually mentioned in the same breath as the word disciplined, or just plain difficult. Angela describes the physical stress of hours of meditation she undertook training in her book Open One Woman's Journey, published in 2002. That's where I really learned about her spiritual side, and I asked her about it in the upcoming interview. In sum, Angela O oh has led a life going headlong into the most difficult situations imaginable. She's taken on race relations, spirituality, and the law with a kind of tirelessness that I think is fascinating. After encountering her name over and over again in my research on the L.A. riots, I got in touch with Angela, and this was just before the video of the George Floyd killing surfaced in May of 2020. When the video touched off a protest movement that swept America, we had to talk. In this interview, you'll hear me get specific on a few items pertaining to 1992, but I also think she has a lot to say about 2020. She can see through the lens of law, human emotion, education, community, and spirituality, and she does so with experience. I just have to say it was an honor to speak with her, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hello. I think you're muted. There you go. Okay. Can you hear me? I can. How are you? I'm good, considering. How are you doing? <laughs> not, not too bad. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right. Um, sounds like you got a busy morning, too. Yeah, into late last night and this morning, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing your important work, and... Okay, that's kind of what I wanted to ask you was what what kind of work are you doing right now in order to to work within the confines of this crisis and everything? Yeah. Um, so on on um, the community front, you know, I'm I'm involved with a, an organization, a nonprofit um, that had its own turmoil last year, and frankly, I wanted to leave the board, but got pulled in as an, an emergency matter and had to make some tough decisions, which has had internal ripple effects. So that's right in Koreatown, most progressive Korean nonprofit. Um, and as with many nonprofits, you know, their struggle. And so in this case, it was interesting. It was sort of a preview because it was intergenerational. It was not just age-wise, but how many uh, generations in this country, right? So you had um, first generation, you had generations that came as children, second generation. We aren't here long enough yet for many third generation to get involved, but, you know. Um, and then um, in terms of the COVID crisis, which triggered the anti-Asian feelings around the country and, you know, reports of assaults and um, threats, there was an alliance put together because even before the Floyd incident, there was also a feeling that um, black Asian relations needed to be attended to because in 92 it was black Korean. And now because of COVID, what we were feeling was a whole anti-Asian. Now everybody is Chinese, whether we are or not, right. we're Chinese with this yeah. face. So there's that 
piece. And so we've been meeting probably for two months as, as an informal, very small alliance. And it was started by two former lifers um, who were released on parole. One is uh, a Cambodian Chinese guy and the other is an African-American. They both did over two decades in prison. And the reason why they know each other is because they meditated while they were inside. So there was a community of meditation practitioners. And the Chinese guy happens to be a regular member of our Wednesday night meditations. We do a Zen meditation every Wednesday night at 6.30. So he's been a part of that now for several years. And his um, instinct was we need to pull something together specifically with blacks because he was on a, a channel, a WeChat. This is now social media coming into it. Mm-hmm. Um, he was on a channel that's mostly read by uh, first generation Chinese families, okay. parents, you know, PTA, neighborhood stuff, marketing tips. Um, but this one particular video that showed up was a guy wearing a black ski mask over his face, loading uh, handguns and basically putting a call out to the OGs, the old gangsters, to come out and protect our community, which is under siege because of the anti-Asian feeling out there. Wow. So when he saw that, he, he immediately sent me the clip. And at first I thought it was a joke because it was just so... I don't know, the guy had on a black knitted mask. You couldn't see who he was. He was talking about, you know, how he's sick of young black men coming into our communities and killing people or threatening to kill people, attacking our seniors, um, disrespecting our culture, all all that rhetoric, right? And so I thought, okay, this is a joke. But I told him, let me think about this for a minute because this, I can't tell if this is real. And why I paid attention is because the next day, and this is you know just karmic stuff that happens to me, it seems like. Um, the next day, I get a phone call from Washington, D.C. And it's this national civil rights group, Asian American civil rights group huh. called uh, Advancing Justice. And I'm on their national advisory council. Okay. So because of my experience in 92, a couple of the lawyers that deal with hate crimes called and they were saying, you know, we've been doing this um, training on how to report and what to do as a bystander. But now we're getting reports that there's uh, intra-racial conflict, specifically with blacks. And I said, really, where are you hearing that from? So out of Minnesota, out of Ohio, mm-hmm. out of um, uh, the tri-state area, reports are starting to come in that there's this tension that they're feeling and could we do something. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so I told them about what was happening in L.A., about the group that was coming together in L.A., and suggested that they might look for partners at the national level. I don't know if they did that. I haven't heard back from them. I know they've been been doing continuous um, monitoring mostly, you know, trying to use their network of local chapters to keep tabs on what has been happening in terms of anti-Asian violence or threats. Yeah. So these hate incidents are, um, are escalating. And then you see, you know, as this black API alliance and API is Asian Pacific Islander Alliance yep. is coming together 
um, <clears throat> the Floyd incident gets videotaped and starts making it around, you know, virtual media, a virtual space. And of course, everyone's shocked. And I knew there was going, there would be calm first because of the shock of seeing mm -hmm. it, but that would be short lived. Then it was going to be immediate. There was going to be a response. And sure enough, we've been living with that since. So here we are on June 4th. In the meantime, you know, my, my day job is I mediate civil rights cases. I so I have a pretty steady diet of discrimination, harassment, and retaliation, hate crime, wow. uh, denial of services based on protected class. So, uh, you know, while I'm doing that work, I'm also getting, you know, from the community, all of what I just shared, um, <clears throat> working remotely from home. So, um, you know, it, I guess my two hour commute gives me the time to do the other stuff and respond to emails, but, and take calls, but it's just, um, you know, a moment that we have got to accept is our reality. And then with the current leadership in DC, you know, now we've escalated it even more with the suggestion that our military force will be used against the citizenry. This is just really beyond, right? Yeah. It's beyond. So um, this isn't about politics and this isn't about race and this is, this is about our very humanity. Yeah. We're losing it in this country. That's my, that's my bottom line analysis. Yeah. In our humanity. And it has become a time in which everything is so competitive, right? to survive in this world anywhere on the globe, if it is not the government, if it is not the kind of economic framework that your society works off of, if it is not um, your religious association, it is the climate, mm -hmm. which is affecting everything, right? Yeah. That was the number one issue that was mobilizing people globally, mm -hmm. um, reaching the next generation, right? Yeah. Greta. Yeah. So um, now that is still in play because like I do a, a weekly meditation, as I said, and mm -hmm. there are people that are calling in from Berkeley, right? To, to sit with us. And it's unseasonably hot in the Bay Area right now. Huh. And people are saying, you know, this is this isn't right. What's happening <laughs> in June, yeah. right? It's supposed to be chilly and cool and all that. Yeah. It's, yeah. Not, it's in the 80s. Yeah. So the universe is shifting in ways that are trying to tell us we need to pay attention, mm. right? So, um, yeah. And and when it comes to race relations, I know that was the subject you wanted to kind of focus on. Yeah. <clears throat> so almost 30 years later, of course, the paradigm is still black and white. I mean, we've made some shifts in terms of awareness that it's beyond black and white for American society just because of who we are and what the demographic mm -hmm. data are telling us about the very near future. But it's still in the United States a black-white proposition, right? And yet Asians also... Uh, and, you know, Latinx people in California, uh, but Asians, I think, across the country 
are feeling um, a sort of split internally. There are those, <clears throat> and I would say they're probably numerically the majority that are conservative. They believe in government leadership and they do not uh, believe in the kind of actions that we're seeing right now connected to the protests where there's destruction of property and looting and vandalism and arson. They don't believe in that. And they think it should be put down very, very harshly. Mm -hmm. So for, for that generation, I think <clears throat> the law and order agenda is one that they align with. Yeah. But in the younger generation, it's not. The younger um, sort of social change, social justice generation, mm -hmm. they're, they're backing up you know, all of what's happening right now and wanting to participate in a more visible way to say we're not with what exists right now. We don't identify with white supremacy. We don't identify with capitalism. We don't identify with the current power distribution. Mm -hmm. We want to change it and we will help you in whatever way we can. Yeah. So <clears throat> there's this huge internal split, right, uh, among what we would call Asian Americans. Mm -hmm. um, and then even, even within that grouping, that you know, sociopolitical concept of Asian America, you have very distinct and different experiences of oh, yeah. being part of this society. So with Japanese Americans, because of the internment in World War II, and because of the generations that have been here, and because of the fact that there have been people out of that community, that ethnic community, who have risen to levels of power in our political frame, yeah. you know, they have um, a different view than would be the Cambodian or the Hmong or the Vietnamese or even Korean community uh, because our experience, our entry into this society's understanding of race and ethnicity was 1992 in LA for Korean ethnic people. But for um, the Chinese, there's a very long history right, sure. of their, their contributions, exclusions, and experience with the legal system, as well as the finance system, as well as the social and cultural frame for this country as it has been predominantly defined. Mm -hmm. So people tried, I think, to um, become a part of the, the mainstream society. And at some point, um, those who reached levels of what we would call success ran into uh, racism. But they, it was confusing, especially for Asians, because it's like, well, we did everything that we're supposed to do, right? Mm -hmm, yeah. We got the education. We went for the uh, positions that were available to us. We achieved in some manner, and we're still being excluded yeah. or still being uh, denigrated in some subtle way, not mm -hmm. as violently as dark-skinned people. Mm -hmm. But for Latinx, for example, you hear over and over again, the alignment in race conversations, it's black and brown. You never hear Asians included, right? Yeah. It's always the black and brown yeah. versus our structure. So Asians are sort of, once again, you know, first it was the model minority. Then it was the inscrutable 
uh, vicious young gangsters. Right. Right. And now it is the invisible and really, you know, not um, inconsequential, insignificant, Mm -hmm. you know, racial group. And by the way, if you speak up, depending on the political analysis, you know, you're a white person by every definition of this society and its capitalist structure. So shut up and sit down. It's very, very confusing for young progressives who are Asian because they want to support and they don't find the um, space for it. I mean, that was the calls I got yesterday. Gotcha. We want to be out there. We don't know, you know, why there isn't more visibility. You mm-hmm. know, they're talking to a 64-year-old person who has an 88-year-old mother and a 91-year-old father still alive with Alzheimer's. I am not going to any protests this week, right? Right. right. Not because I'm afraid for me, but I have to go and see them yeah. as frequently as I can because they still live on their own, mm-hmm. right? And I'm delivering food to them. I'm delivering wipes to them. I'm delivering toilet paper to them. Right? So I am not going to be risking um, exposure. Mm -hmm. And even though my my parents are pretty cavalier about it, you know, when my mother was insisting early on to keep going to the bank and going to the market, she said, I don't care. I'm 88. You know, I'm I'm done. I'm not afraid of death. Right. Thing was, yeah, but, you know, you still have dad and what do you want to expose all of us? No. Think about it. Yeah. It's not about you. Right. 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 So she, she then, you know, agreed to stay in, but it's, you know, people have to kind of shift their thinking right now. The thinking is so, um, I, it's like a, it's an ancient arcane frame. You know, people need to understand we are so inextricably interconnected globally Mm -hmm. that when you start talking about, you know, withdrawing from an entity like the World Health Organization because you don't like what they're saying or you don't like that another member is starting to gain influence. Mm. I mean, come on, you know, disease pestilence doesn't recognize nationality as much as you would like to show your quote strength. Yeah. But that's without much wisdom or intelligence. Right. So it makes it difficult um, when you're talking about those cross generational challenges and then the lumping of Asian Americans into a, a just one group Here's, here's what the one group thinks. Um, as you said, there's a, a bifurcation with a con- sort of a conservative-leaning ideology and a, maybe a more liberal-leaning ideology, but then you're breaking it down by the nationality. You're breaking it down by uh, the age of the people involved. And it, it really has been a struggle for me as well with this crisis going on, uh, the generalization problem, which is that's perennial, right? Where we, we try to generalize in order to figure out how the universe works um, and to try to come up with some laws. But uh, social science is, is, is such a, a difficult thing to understand because the rules are not, they're not quite like physics, right? It's not, hey, we can make a generalization about this group right here. And I, I, in reading about uh, 92, I even saw the generational attitudes um, changing um, depending on the the 
time that the Korean immigrants came into the United States. So you had people pre-1960s uh, coming in, and then you had a 1960s crowd, and then a group that came in in the 70s that had, um, from what I understand, many of them had um, much higher standard of living coming in, um, having experienced that back in, in South Korea. Now they're coming to the United States, and then they're having a culture clash, plus possibly an economic loss. Um, so you even saw that going into those those uh, those conflicts, and so it's I'm definitely hearing you on that and trying to navigate that in in the work you're doing, where you're you have a two hour commute every day, <laughs> plus you're then getting involved with these these small nonprofits, which is where I work is in a small nonprofit. This is all these things all trying to trying to fit them all together is is increasingly difficult, especially in the climate you're talking about. Um, right. And in the world of philanthropy, they, I think, were in the middle of shifting the way that support for the third sector, you know, mm -hmm. would, would happen. In other words, my understanding from talking with friends who work in that space was that they were starting to realize that um, a form of trust-based support and funding was necessary mm. to begin thinking about um, so what does that mean? That means, you know, not having to submit online these ridiculous reports that ask for metrics that really aren't real when it comes to dealing with yeah. social and um, cultural needs, which is what a lot of them want to address. They want to support, you know, stabilizing communities that are not able to get a footing without some supports in place that are culturally competent and linguistically accessible. Yeah. Um, and, and metrics of a certain sort can be given, but really the, the shifts happen in ways that are more readily accessible through a qualitative reporting back. Yeah. But then qualitative reporting back requires POs, program officers, to read <laughs> and really absorb and understand uh, context and, and so there was starting to be some conversation led by small foundations actually on the west coast mm -hmm. um, saying look we have to do something that is more trust-based we have to trust the people that we come into contact with why don't you consider just having conversations with them about what it, what they're doing what their challenges are how they're how they could see support being more effective if we have dollars to give yeah. And then, you know, there's the whole question of, you know, philanthropy and are they giving enough? Uh, is the corpus, you know, so valuable that you can't move past 5%? Yeah. You know, this is another issue. And I think that implicates tax laws and it implicates the world of wealth that I don't really know. But mm -hmm. um, so this is what I mean when I say inextricably. Yes. interconnected right it's it's in every aspect of our existence and mm -hmm. now it's coming to be very clear i mean in in the world of of spiritual practice and ancient knowledge and teachings this was understood taoists mm -hmm. <laughs> understood this you know they took their cues from what they would refer to as the heavens you know today mm -hmm. we would say nature right yeah. They, they took their cues from what was happening in the world, capital W, <laughs> okay? Yeah. Not just their world. And so 
uh, now what's happening in my opinion is that people are realizing that there's another level of energy that we haven't paid attention to. Mm-hmm. We're, we're being informed by a universal energy, I think. It's beyond governments and religions and beyond all these identity kinds of categories, right? Yeah. People can feel the pain and suffering. Even if they are not in it physically themselves, they are feeling it. Yeah. And that's the world that I'm talking about that we do not um, attend to in this society. Can I, can I ask you something about that? Actually, I was in your book, I was reading your book and um, actually I wanted to show you this. I actually have a, <laughs> <laughs> actually somehow ended up with the signed one, but um, in your, in your book, you were talking a little bit about the, um, your your ordination and your practice and um of zen and you were talking about the the really rigorous work you went through in order to get there and to get to where you wanted to be personally and spiritually um this was this was fascinating to me because you're you're engaging in probably one of the hairiest and diff- most difficult problems in the united states which is race and then you're also kind of taking this very difficult spiritual path at the same time um and it seems like that kind of discipline is is very helpful in this in this case. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and why, how how it is that you end up diving into the most difficult of circumstances, um, just on a personal level, and how you deal with that. Because I think for listeners that may be something that's very useful to understand. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> I can make up a story, but it's probably not useful. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I don't really know. Um, I can say that without my Zen training, I think I would have been even a worse human being than I am. My whole interest at that point was how do I become a better human being? Hmm. You're not going to learn that in school. And unfortunately, we don't learn it in our families either, necessarily. I mean, some people are very blessed and they have elders around them Mm -hmm. who have deep wisdom and deep courage and are disciplined and can accept um, the conditions that remind them to be humble at all times. I don't have that ability even now with all of what I've tried to do with my training, training myself. There's a point at which, you know, you must have a teacher that guides you. I was fortunate in that way. Um, And then, you know, there's only so much that they can teach and then you have to be your own teacher. And I find myself, um, as recently as last month, I just lost it with somebody. This was in the nonprofit sector. Mm -hmm. And I just, you know, I couldn't. And the irony was, you know, in the moment that I lost it, I had just finished a 45-minute meditation. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So I should have been able to take what was coming at me and just let it go Mm -hmm. because that's ultimately my understanding and where I'm at is we need to let go, right? The anger, the greed, the frustration, the fear, the doubt, the suspicion, the delusional thinking, we need to let it go and we need to see things as they are. But I was just unable to do that. Yeah. So it just goes to show, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter. 
I mean, people where, I mean, there's the Dalai Lama and there's Thich Nhat Hanh and there's my teacher, Tanoi. But, you know, the, at the end of the, of the day, you know, it's just, it's never ending. Mm-hmm. The, the self-training, the self-reflection that has to continue happening. And what is interesting to me, having been born and raised in Los Angeles, but coming from a culture that, you know, is across the Pacific and thousands of years old, not hundreds. What I'm observing is the coming together of two very different orientations toward living in this three-dimensional material world. And you, you're hearing it a little bit right now with, you know, in, in the Western frame, it's very much the individual, right? Individual responsibility, individual development, individual rights, we have the Bill of Rights, we have, and, you know, having been a lawyer doing uh, the work that I did, I understand very well, you know, the, the frame. And then you have this other culture that totally de- does not value individualism, mm. not at all. all right. It is what is in the best interest of the whole. Mm. And if that means some people have to sacrifice, it's okay because the whole is more important than those individuals, right? It's a very difficult thing to absorb from the frame that, you know, I've grown up in. And I I feel like my Zen training has kind of given me that because first you start with the physical pain, right? Which is what I went through. Right, right. It's physical pain to sit there for hours and hours without moving when the humidity is at, you know, whatever percent and you're just dripping wet, but you cannot move. Right. Mm. And it's interesting at a certain point to watch, how do I respond to physical discomfort? Yeah. And then because you're doing it for days on end, you have this mental and emotional sort of breaking down not a breakdown, but a breaking down. Like, because especially if you're well-educated, it's harder because your mind is so clever. It can rationalize anything. This is what we see a lot happening in the law. That's why I say the law is the ultimate illustration of delusion, right? (laughs) Delusion is reality by agreement. It's not reality. And the law is all about that, right? And not only is it about you know, reality by agreement in this moment, but then we take precedent and we follow this precedent that is no longer relevant to today because that's the way it's set up. And we all agree that we'll follow that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I say it's the perfect example of delusion, right? So here we are sitting in a time when these two major viewpoints that do not come from the same place are starting to come together. Mm -hmm. So look at Hong Kong. That's the physical manifestation. The people there are Chinese. They're Chinese. Mm -hmm. But if you ask them, they are not. They're Hong Kongese. And they do not, they reject their Chinese identity completely. Completely. And yet they know that when the transition happened that Hong Kong would over a 50 year period fully go back to China. We're about at the halfway point. This is why China is being very assertive right now 
yeah. and making the point, you are part of us, mm-hmm. right? But the U.S. is really fueling the individualism, the self-identity, the self-determination, the self-whatever. Yeah. We do a lot of that, yeah. right? So, you know, it's just really interesting to watch all of this. And I'm so happy to be alive in this lifetime at this moment because there's so much happening in terms of transformation. Yeah, and it, it's a... Um... You know, you mentioned that it's 30 years since, you know, almost 30 years since the 92 riots and the site, almost like there's a cycle that's built in. It sometimes, sometimes alarms me how the things repeat and I, I don't know how much of it's a forgetting of how things went before. I mean, I like, I, I think I told you over email, I was seven years old when those riots happened in LA and I had a very you know, very rudimentary understanding of what was going on. Whereas you were my age and you were right in the middle of it. Um, and so you're, you're recalling it. And I was worried with your email the other day, you said something like, you know, I'm really having trouble with everything going on because you've seen it all before. And it's, it's uh, that, that's the wisdom you were talking about coming from, from elders where you can learn so much that way. Um, but you do need mentoring, it seems like, and there's there's some kind of guidance that can be given, and it's almost like we don't have the system in place to to give that kind of guidance. Um, right know. in in other cultures, right from the east, it's very common for there to be intergenerational um, living situations. Yeah. Like it's so interesting to me when I think about my own parents who came from that, right, but. I remember growing up thinking uh, or hearing them always say, you need to get an education. We don't care if you're girls, because we had three girls for many years. And, you know, the whole sort of uh, gender thing in many Asian cultures orients toward males. So um, we don't care if you're all girls. You all have to get an education so you can take care of yourselves because we don't want to be a burden on you. We want you to be able to go on with your lives and we will do what we need to do to take care of our lives. So don't worry about taking care of us. It's a very interesting message, right? And of course, today, you know, the two sisters, three sisters are all very close to my, geographically to my folks who insist on living independently still Mm -hmm. at their age. Um, so we are there almost every day. One of us is there almost okay. every day. So, but in, in a traditional setting, you would have the grandparents, the parents, and the grandkids all together. And there's something about the energy, right? So as people get older, right, the, the grandchildren are a natural uh, elixir for them to come alive and to share and yeah. You know, there's a whole tradition of um, teaching different life skills, how mm-hmm. to cook, how to serve tea, how to drink tea together. And in the process, there's a lot of intelligence being downloaded. Yeah. In, in the Western context, I mean, my experience has been, you know, if you're um, in a household where you've got, you know, the, the, the mom and the dad and the kids the parent, grandparents are visitors or yeah. you visit them. And they, um, that, that happened with my grandparents even when they migrated here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then it's more like uh, they're, they're, the life gets so busy, we don't have time to see grand, grandma and grandpa, right? Yeah. So that doesn't happen. And maybe you might remember to send a birthday card if you live across the continent, or you, know, you might visit once every other year if you can afford it to yeah. go. So there, there's this kind of um, sadness, actually, I'm realizing for elders in this country. Mm. And they're all like sent to these places where they now what we're seeing, they're dying together. And their family can't even be there. We had an event last night with my dad and uh, who's 91. And my sis called me uh, to go right away. He was having an episode. He had some kind of an infection that we thought might require him to go to the ER. And then we all took a beat and we said, we're not sending him to the ER. Yeah, yeah. First of all, the last time that happened, he had to wait 16 hours. Okay. <sighs> and this, the other thing is the conditions that we're in right now. Yeah. If he's going to go, let him go at home. Do yeah. not send him to the ER. So instead we made some other arrangement. My sister happens to be a pharmacist. So okay. she knew she got all the stuff in, in place. And my yeah. other sister happens to be a doctor. So she came right over. Okay. Um, they were able to take care of the, um, the situation. Yeah. Very but, good. but uh, you know, these are, these are times in which a lot of um, things are showing themselves to me. And I'm trying to process, I'm trying to write a book actually to be released in the 30th year of 92. Yeah. And I feel like I need to download a lot of what I see. When you ask me how did I end up doing this, I will tell you I remember this. I was getting, and it, to me, this is just karma. I never had an interest in visiting Hawaii. It just was another place. I was perfectly happy being in California, but I was part of a women's organization that was holding a conference in Honolulu at the turn of the century from 99 to 2000. Mm -hmm. And I had to go there a lot, right? And, it, and I was in my law practice and I was handling a, a double homicide. It was a really hairy case. I was defending a 17-year-old boy who had killed his mother and 10-year-old sister. Wow. I can't even believe I did this work, but I did. I was, uh, yeah, so I was traveling for meetings for that conference, but also at, that, at the end of the 90s, I had been a part of um, this race initiative that, that Clinton had in initiated as an effort to try and lift up the legacy of slavery and racism in this country back then in 97, right. 98. And so I was also flying to the East Coast quite a bit. So, you know, I, I, I considered where I lived in California, the middle of the country, because it was five and a half. <laughs> so still on a loop. I was doing both quite a bit. And um, in, that, in that period, I met my Zen teacher who started making me think about, you know, what am I doing? I mean, it's great that you're doing this thing on the continent with the White House and it's an important subject and but really is that what your life is for? Mm -hmm. Really made me think. I mean ultimately I ended up leaving my practice 
being unemployed for a while, but I had this persona, right? Yeah. And people thought, oh, she's just rich. That's how she could do it. No, I was not. <laughs> I was really. <laughs> and um, I just decided the only way to change, and I'd had many conversations with lawyers who hated their work, but they didn't know what else they could do because this mm. is what they're trained to do. So yeah. they stayed in it. And for me, I had reached a point where, um, and I say thanks to my teacher, where I realized, no, this is not what I'm supposed to be doing but I'm not going to be able to find out what I'm supposed to be doing if I keep doing this, yeah. you know? So I finished that, that trial and, um, and then let, left the practice. Gotcha. The practice. Uh, that's yeah. one, that's one to go out on, I guess. I mean, geez, that's, uh, that's yeah. qu quite a heavy thing to, to bear. So. Oh, yeah. A lot of, a lot of tears during that era and quote, I quote unquote won that trial. Yeah, right. So it yeah. means he didn't get off. It was like he was facing life without the possibility of parole, and that didn't happen. He he got second degree on both. I see. So this was considered a win. But the the thing that I wanted to say is that when people uh, are faced with really um, insurmountable and really complex complicated, unanswerable situations, th there are no answers. And this is a generation that wants answers. There are no answers out there. Mm -hmm. You know, you really do have to go inward. You really have to look at what is inside. This is where you're going to find some answers. Yeah. And those answers will guide your actions. Right? Right complete it's never complete as i just said you know a month ago i just totally lost it with somebody and you know it just reminded me to stay humble because you know what you're not all that <laughs> yes. right right yes i um but then it but then you know once you've maybe once you've done that introspection then you seem to have the this ability or hopefully you you end up being able to take some action in the world and then you end up in, again, we go back to nonprofits, but you end up in these, these groups. And one of the things that I keep running into is uh, the fact that some of these groups that, that arise and they have charismatic leaders, they end up being so important, whereas they've struggled for years and years with no recognition. I keep thinking of um, like the Korean American Grocers in 92 Association, right? It's an association of a couple people who are getting together to talk about market issues all of a sudden they're at the head of um, these pushes and, and then it's another challenge. Um, and it seems like, um, so I was wondering if you can comment shortly, I know we're coming up on an hour and I want to be conscious of your time, but maybe about the value of those organizations and how to best, how to best mediate these things through, through community organizations, especially when it's so tough. Yeah. I'm not very successful at that. <laughs> I've tried, uh, and I'm a mediator. I, I really, I will say that um, these organizations that form are really important for the individuals that come together because they're a form of support, you know, psychological, emotional, as well as whatever the, in the ca case of CAGVA, you know, the, um, the fact that they had this shared experience of being targeted. Yeah. So 
so that's what really um, brought them into prominence because of the fact that they were destroyed yeah. and um, this and targeted in that destruction. But, you know, they, they were short lived actually. Okay. I mean, it's a remnant of that that continues. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure. I think these entities have value in the moment. BLM was starting to fade, and right. now because of this, huge, huge yeah. recovery. And so, you know, I think it's their destiny. I guess I could put it that way. There are some entities that have their own destiny. So our job is not to say what it is as practitioners who join with them at any given moment. Yeah. I think our job is to help them to meet their destiny, whether it is to grow or to dissolve, yeah. right? Yeah. And more entities dissolve than grow, right? Even the largest, look at Planned Parenthood and what has gone on there. Look at the Red Cross and what has mm -hmm. gone on there in the last year. I mean, these are mega nonprofits, right? Yeah. yeah. But they're always occupied by human beings. And human beings bring all kinds of things to the existence of that entity. Yeah. I often say to people who are in politics, who are thinking about going into politics, if you feel that's your calling, you should go and do the best that you can. But understand that your vision today is not going to be what you encounter or able to promote once you're there. Uh, these are people who are, you know, thinking in terms of social justice, social change, power analyses, um, have learned all about power from a frame of how to get the information, how to organize it, how to then leverage it into public policy, and so on and so forth. And people who get brought into that also are consultants and they're um, advocates and they're, you know, uh, they choose lobbying maybe, or they do, but you see, the world of politics in itself, that institution, it has its own energy mm. and it has nothing to do with this person, this party, this grouping, this, no. The institution itself has its own character, yeah. its own energy. And if you don't go along with that flow, you're spit out very quickly, right? Or you're marginalized so that you cannot be effective. Right have to understand that and make the decision like, okay, so that's the case and I'm going to stay in it. Why? Because it's the only tool we have. And so I have to really honor those people that stay in it. Right. Yeah. Because it is not, it's a very toxic kind of environment and we're seeing it played out more visibly than ever yeah. at the level of the national leadership. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Person after the other being spit out, spit out, spit out, attacked, spit out, spit out. That's what you call power politics for the moment. And people are confident that, you know, uh, he will be reelected. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I hear it all the time. This man will be reelected. I don't know after what's happening right now because the international uh, voices are now starting to come into play. Yeah. So maybe he won't be because his own party will maybe abandon him. But, yeah. but at this point, um, the, the, the common wisdom is that he will be reelected. He's an incumbent. So that is usually how it goes, right? Um, 
hopefully right. not in my view, but <laughs> yeah, we will, we'll see it is I am, I am trying to stay optimistic about things um, and trying to, trying to find, find the best path through. And I've, I've found that this podcasting project is fun. Like I said, it's not my full-time job, but it's something fun. And I'm, I'm just honored that you were willing to, to come on and talk to me and, and my audience and, and the people that I talk to, which is not a huge number, but it's, it's a growing little, little podcast here. And it's, I'm just, I'm really, I'm really honored by that. And I, really appreciate the work you've done. And I really also encourage you to please write that book because I think, <laughs> especially now it's much needed um, having the historic perspective and be able to look back and say, well, at the time there wasn't social media at the time this was, it was a completely different technological environment, but it's still, it was still people. It was still people interacting with other people. Um, there was, and the emotions are all the same. Yeah. Um, it's so much, um, yeah, that's why I say it's it's about our humanity. It's yeah. it's really not about what political party or anything else. Yeah. It's about our humanity. And that is something that everybody has to, you know, discover and reinforce or affirm yeah. in their own way. If yeah. if it's going to church, go to church. If it's going to temple, go to temple. If it's taking a hike in the Sierras or you know, bicycling down Central Avenue, do it. Whatever it is that gets you back in touch with the fact that you are a human being living in this time, in this world, with this capacity, what is it that you can do? Right? I think that's... optimistic. I don't, you know, I know that there's debate over using that term. I stay in a place of great faith, hmm. great determination. I stay in that place no matter what. And that's not, that is not the easy way. Um, no, no. Hey, I appreciate it. I'm going to let you go. I would love, um, you had mentioned that there were some other people to talk to and yes, if, if you'd be willing to put me in touch with them, if we, if you want to, I could work out with you on scheduling something. Sure. I'd love to hear more voices, but I'm yep. just, I'm so pleasured. To, to meet you and to make your acquaintance. Thank and, you. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much for your time and thoughtfulness. Of course. And thank you. It's beyond my choir because yeah. as I said to you in a prior email, I really, I really uh, have stopped speaking publicly yeah. because I found myself talking to myself pretty much. Yeah. And that's not useful. We need to reach beyond and then have the heart to hear things that are not how we see it, see it so yeah. we can learn. Yeah. I've got an interesting group. I, I, I think this is, I think this is a great thing to, to get out there into the universe right now. So okay. I appreciate it, Angela. Thank so much. So much Be uh, well. You too. Bye now. Bye. So that's the interview, folks. I hope you enjoyed it. Angela works these days with API Rise, where API is Asian Pacific Islander and Rise is reentry and inclusion through support and empowerment. 
You'll hear more about API Rise in the next interview I'm posting. She also works with Gift of Compassion, a nonprofit that focuses on the healing power of meditation, particularly among underserved and under-resourced populations. You'll find links to both of these groups in the show notes, and I encourage you to check them out and donate if possible. In the next episode of the podcast, you'll see that I posted an interview with Angela's associates, Tim and Billy. I hope you'll check that out too. On housekeeping note, we actually set up a Facebook page so you can come by, check us out, get updates, and discuss episodes at facebook.com slash tinderboxpodcast. Hope to see you there. In the meantime, stay safe out there in the tinderbox.